What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Bryson Sullivan. Bryson is an aerodynamics expert and an F1 enthusiast, and he joins me today to break down the Monaco Grand Prix, including decisions made by the FIA, Ferrari's strategy mistakes, Alonso holding up the pack, whether or not the track will be removed from the calendar, the 2022 championship fight, and more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Bryson, and I hope that you do too. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've been wearing a Whoop for several years now, and it has made a massive difference in my life. It's the only tech product that I wear 24-7, so it's pretty cool to see people like Patrick Mahomes, Rory McIlroy, Michael Phelps, and Justin Bieber wearing one also. Whoop automatically measures your respiratory rate, oxygen level, resting heart rate, heart rate variability, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. Sure, it might sound complex, but Whoop interprets the data for you, so it's easy to digest and actionable. And now, their 4.0 is officially back in stock and shipping in real time. But here's the best part. Whoop is offering my listeners 15% off their Whoop 4.0 right now with the code Joe at checkout. So go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P.com and enter Joe at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Next up is 8sleep. 8sleep has dramatically improved my daily performance. For me, I was never able to get a good sleep because I was always too hot. But now, I am falling asleep in record time, faster than I have before, all thanks to my 8sleep Pod Pro Cover. The Pod Pro Cover by 8sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. You can add the cover to any mattress. The temperature regulation will create the optimal sleeping environment by adjusting to each side of the bed based on personalized sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature. The results are proven to be true. 8sleep users fall asleep up to 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, and get overall more restful sleep. And it's not just me who sleeps on an 8sleep. The product is so good that it's garnered the attention of CEOs, Olympians, UFC champions, and even the Mercedes F1 racing team. So go to 8sleep.com slash Joe, that's J-O-E, for exclusive Memorial Day savings through June 6. Cool down this summer with 8sleep, now shipping within the USA, UK, Canada, and Australia. Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, let's get into this episode. All right, guys, I have Bryson Sullivan joining me today. Bryson is a aerodynamics expert, I'll say, a Formula One enthusiast, fan of the sport, and very good with all the technical side of the sport. One of the best follows on Twitter. Also, if you don't follow Bryson already, I would make sure to do that from a Formula One perspective. Bryson, how are you? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you for joining me on such late notice, but I want to talk about yesterday's race. <laughs> I feel like there's a bunch of different things we could we could talk about, but maybe let's start with what happened at the beginning. Right. I think from my perspective and a lot of other people, everyone knows Monaco is generally boring from an overtaking perspective and, and a racing perspective outside of maybe qualifying and so forth. But we had some rain and people were excited about that. I saw you tweeting early on in the day, hoping for it or, or, or wishing that we might see some chaos from that perspective. But the FIA said not so fast at the beginning of the race. What is your kind of understanding of, of why they did that and the impact that it had on the race. Yeah, it's such an unusual thing. I mean, Monaco is such a specific circuit on the calendar. We often wish for things to happen like this, you know, rain to happen. Some people are throwing a little bit of variation, 
when the rain was forecast, we were all quite excited. And then suddenly it seemed like the opportunity to race was slowly slipping away, you know, minute by minute. I, I'm not going to second guess everything that the FIA did and Race Direction did as far as starting the race. There appear to have been some extenuating circumstances with a power failure and, and some other details that need to be worked out as far as why the start was delayed. But it seemed like there was a hesitation to allow the best drivers in the world to race cars in the wet. <laughs> that, that was the impression that it seemed like. And I think the thing that needs to really be emphasized is these are really the best drivers in the world. And it's true that these new cars are quite tricky. We've had sort of limited running in, in the rain. But I think it's up to us to give them the opportunity to demonstrate their abilities, right? And demonstrate their ability to drive a car around a racetrack. And it seemed like we were waiting, you know, we were waiting on the sayings of, of meteorologists, right? We weren't really waiting on anything else to figure out if the conditions were good enough to race. And the question was asked, you know, why do we have these extreme wet tires or intermediate tires if we're not going to drive on them in the wet, which I think is a fair question. So in terms of what actually happened, I think the race start was delayed longer than it was ideal to be delayed. As I said before, there's information that would suggest that that part of that reason is because of, you know, random events. But ideally, it would be great to start the race earlier and, and give drivers a chance to show us how good they are. Yeah, I think there was a few components that at least interested me personally, right? The one you spoke of, of, of letting drivers show how good they are. Lewis Hamilton was actually asked after the race about them saying that they hadn't run any practices or, or, or qualifying in the wet or in, in uh, kind of the wet tires. And he said, we're Formula One drivers. That's not an excuse, right? And I think that purposely encapsulates like what you're saying there of you have to let the drivers do what they do. And then the other part of this is if you look at the tire setup right before the race actually was scheduled to begin, everyone was shuffling and trying to figure out exactly what to do. And a lot of them were on different sets of tires, which would have perfectly set us up to have some of that chaos maybe at the beginning that everyone wanted. But then to your point, the flip side of this is like, sure, there were things that are now coming out about power outages and other things. But my guess is there probably would have been a red flag somewhat early on anyways, right? So maybe that doesn't necessarily have as big of an impact as we would have thought. Yeah, there certainly would have been a red flag eventually, but the earlier you start, the more laps you can actually get in before everything is finished. And as we ended yep. up seeing in the race, we didn't actually complete all of the scheduled laps as a, as a result of how that timing and everything worked out. So there's going to be a, a thorough debrief after the fact, and I hope some lessons are learned from it. All right, so let's talk about Ferrari specifically. Charles Leclerc has some tough luck, to say the least, in Monaco. Uh, and it happened again this weekend. He clearly had the pace to win the race if you look at just qualifying on Saturday. But the strategy was not correct from their perspective during the race. Talk us through kind of what happened there and what maybe went wrong or should have gone differently. Yeah, it's a challenge because, as you said, these are changeable conditions where everyone started on the extreme wet. And then you were moving over into the intermediate tires as it was drying. And then after that, some people tried to go on to hard or, or, or medium. The difficulty is you lose a tremendous amount of time when you're in the pit lane. And so if it was actually possible to extend your run on full wets until the actual point where you could go directly onto slicks, you could gain, you know, a considerable amount of time. You know, Monaco is one of the shortest pit lanes on the calendar, but you could still gain a lot of time. And if you actually go back and look at the tire strategies for all of the teams, you'll see that Charles Leclerc actually was only on intermediate tires for about three laps. <laughs> he pitted on lap 18 for inters and then was off of them on lap 21. Whereas Carlos Sainz pitted on lap 21 and went straight onto, onto the slicks, which gained him some time. But also, Ferrari seemed to have another issue separate from that first one, which was that 
they told Charles to come in initially. And then at the last minute, realized that if he did come in on the same lap that Carlos was in, he was going to have to double stack and sort of wait for a few seconds while Carlos was being serviced. And as I said before, that's going to lose you a tremendous amount of time. It's unclear if someone just got those timings wrong or missed a key piece of information. But by the time they said, no, actually, you should stay out, (laughs) Charles, it was too late. He was fully committed and he lost track position as a result of that. And if there's one thing you have to maintain in Monaco is track position. Because as Sergio Perez showed and Alonso certainly showed afterwards, you could be three, four seconds off the pace and still not be passed. So that was kind of a, a drop ball from Ferrari, unfortunately. Yeah, and I, I want to talk about Alonso in a second here because I think that was probably a, a major point of the race or at least something that a lot of people want to talk more about. But when it comes to Leclerc specifically, have you seen any of the video evidence about what happened with Albon after he he was released and he was held up essentially for at least a lap, it seemed. And it's there's varying opinions. It's difficult to tell when you rewatch how many blue flags were actually shown, but there was certainly over 15, maybe even 20 plus blue flags that he just completely ignored. And then my understanding is after the race, he essentially said, hey, look, I had the pace. It was better for both of us if I was ahead and, and he followed. Otherwise, I would have been able to pass him or something of that variation. You're shaking your head a little bit. What is the <laughs> what is what is your your take or your opinion on on that situation? That's not how blue flags work. <laughs> yeah. You know, you don't get to dictate the impact of your pace on someone else's race. If you see three blue flags, you have to move out of the way. And uh, I'm glad this is not a court of law. Glad that Alex Alba doesn't have legal representation because I'm sure his lawyer would be sweating and telling him not to uh, incriminate himself in this way. Because what he essentially said was that. It wasn't a, a pure case of simply missing the flags, that he was deliberately ignoring them, which is problematic, to say the least. My position is that he should have gotten out of the way immediately, regardless of his perceived idea about what the best decision was. That's just the, the nature of blue flags. And yeah, if, if Charles's race was compromised by that, he has every right to be upset. Yeah, and I think Latifi did it at some point to signs too. I don't, I don't know how much his race was compromised either, but that's one of the things that I hear a lot from new fans or Americans that are getting into the sport now is the inconsistencies in the rules, right? Or, or the, the lack of kind of clear rules. Is that something that you think is a problem, right? This is obviously one instance of, you know, he, he is ignoring blue flags, a lot of blue flags. There's no penalty from it. Ferrari, I don't even think protested it, but ultimately if the rule is the rule, he should have followed the rule. Same thing with Max coming out of the pit lane and crossing the line. And we've seen several others with with the safety cars last year, obviously, and so forth. Is this something that you think they need to clean up and and clarify before it becomes too big of a problem? It is. And it's not even my own position. It's it's the FIA's position (laughs) that they need to clean up things and make sure that documents are consistent throughout. I think this question of of safety cars and even even red flags and qualifying is important as well, because what if someone crashes in qualifying Mm -hmm and their fast slap is maintained, and they maintain position as a result of that. We're certainly not suggesting anyone did anything on purpose, but if there's an IndyCar-esque rule that if you were the one that caused a yellow flag or a red flag, your fastest time is automatically deleted, that kind of a rule would make perfect sense in, in a place like Monaco, and it would be totally understandable to remove any doubt of untoward behavior. Yeah, with, with regard to going over the line, the yellow line the pit exit, I think a six-year-old that can play hopscotch correctly understands what crossing a line means perhaps better than than some people in the FAA, it seems. There seems to be a sort of an arbitrary definition of what it actually means to cross a line. And the explanations that I've heard as to why the rule is the way that it is currently have been wholly un- unsatisfactory. I wouldn't argue that they're not enforcing their own rule correctly. 
I would argue that the interpretation of crossing a boundary doesn't make mathematical or physical sense. So if that's how they want to play it, then I think we're just going to have to move on. Sometimes it feels like it's more of an art than a science, right? Like they're trying to manipulate rules or not manipulate maybe is the correct word, but they enforce rules in certain ways, depending on the outcome of the situation and the individuals involved. Do you think that's accurate or do you think about it in a different way? That's certainly the impression that I get. And that's not a a healthy thing to have. It's not a, a good thing to have. In every situation, we should be asking ourselves, are we trying to apply the rules as they are written or are we trying to interpret them or otherwise bend them to achieve a desired outcome? It always needs to be the former. And the fact that you can even ask questions about that with like plausible legitimacy is already a problem. It should be universally clear based on the rules themselves and the actions, the historical record of the actions, that there's no bias in the sport there. And it's just not as easy to say that now as it has been in the past. And as I said before, it shouldn't it shouldn't require an advanced degree in set theory to determine if you've crossed the line or not. <laughs> you know, it should be pretty straightforward, but it, it seems not to be. So we hope that something comes from this and that some lessons are learned. Yeah, you would think that's something that most people can agree on at least, but time will tell. Let's talk about Alonzo for a little bit here. I think most people understand what happened at this point. He was holding up a majority of the pack, whether he was trying to save his tires or position or whatever it was. Lewis Hamilton was stuck behind him as well as another other driver. So it actually ended up maybe even backfiring on him some degree or Alpine in general because Ocon was had the five-second penalty and was put out of the points. What is your general understanding of this and, and the impact that it has, not only on Monaco, but on the sport in general? Because So I saw a funny picture, I'm sure you've seen at this point, where half the field is on one side of the track and Alonso and everyone else is on the other side of the track. And it's like funny, right, to some degree. Some people probably say, hey, look, this is racing, right? If he is trying to preserve his position, if he's trying to save tires, like that's what you do. And it's unfortunate that it's on a track like Monaco where it's difficult to pass and nothing could happen. But at the same time, right, like the entire race was held up. There was no overtaking outside of Pierre Gasly, I think, had two overtakes. And I think Lando Norris pitted and still came out like 14 or 15 seconds ahead of, of Alonso in the group, right? So that just gives you an idea of how spread out they were. Just talk me through your thoughts on that whole situation. I don't think anyone fully understands the mental state of someone other than them. We can certainly speculate as to historical and contextual reasons why he may have done that. If you're asking me whether or not that level of going slow is consistent with the explanation that was given, I'm going to say no. Falling off the pace that much in order to save tires doesn't really seem to make sense to me. And as you said, Norris pitted and came out, so it, it, it still wouldn't really matter anyway because his tires would be much worse than, than Norris's on new new tires. So that it really didn't seem to make sense from that perspective. But in terms of Monaco, this is kind of the perfect you know microcosm of what the circuit is actually like. It seems like you can be four or five seconds off the pace and keep someone behind you And it's actually being used in a way that is, I don't want to say completely ruining racing, but it's redefining what we even mean by a race. A race is, in principle, something where overtakes are at least theoretically possible. That's one of the reasons why we had an issue with Spa last year, because there is no potential for overtaking, but there were points given. Monaco is getting to the point now where overtakes are starting to almost be theoretically impossible, unless you have a major tire difference. So I'm, I'm hoping that Alpine considers this and looks at this carefully because you are completely right in that his pace was so slow that he actually pushed Ocon out of the points. And as a team, that's something that really doesn't make sense. Alonso's place didn't change. You know, Hamilton's place didn't change. If Hamilton got up the road, 
he would not have, have probably caught Norris because of how far back they were. The one thing Alpine should have been focusing on is Ocon's points, and he lost them. And that was a direct consequence of Fernando Alonso. Yeah. And how do you think about this in the overall context of Monaco? There's obviously this debate now of should Monaco remain on the calendar, should it not remain on the calendar? And I'm kind of torn on this personally, really, right? Because I think that there is a historical aspect of the track that's amazing, right? It's been, I think, 100 years at this point that people have been racing there. It's great. It's good for sponsors. I'm sure they like it. It's, it's kind of the marquee event from that perspective. Very entertaining, et cetera. But at the same time, if you look at a race like yesterday, we had basically what everyone wanted, which was chaos. Everyone was online saying, look, there's chaos. There's chaos. There was rain. Strategy played a key role. But at the end of the day, it was still pretty boring, right? Like we had a little bit of mix up in the front of who won, but with Alonzo holding up half the pack, there was virtually no overtakes. And I think it's been since the 1980s, no one outside of the top three has won the race, which is just an incredible stat when you think about the context of, of overtaking and all of that stuff. So I think there's like, you know, I can see both sides. I'm curious your opinion on, on where you think the direction of the race goes and, and if Yesterday was like the perfect microcosm of what Monaco has become. Yeah, I mean, Monaco certainly is a crown jewel of the Formula One calendar, and it's been there since forever. But at the same time, Formula One is changing, right? The fact that the markets are growing and that new races are being added all the time suddenly gives Formula One leverage and that they may not have had before. Instead of Monaco being able to say, well, we're over Monaco, we can do whatever we want. Formula One can now say, we have Miami now, we have Las Vegas coming, we have other races in other parts of the world as well. What are you bringing to the table to improve the sport? And I think the question of the races is, is, is very important because it seems like it's not as much as it potentially could be. I'm not sure what the immediate solution is, but with regard to Monaco staying on the calendar or not, I'm actually a very big fan of shifting it to a biannual race instead of just dropping it off the calendar outright. That seems like a good intermediate era region to put it so that it understands you know, what it could be like to be off the calendar, number one but also give space for other venues to potentially hold races as well. that We might not normally go to, you know, the Hockenheim ring or, or Nürburgring places that are, we really want to go to, but really can't because, you know, circuits are locked in for a number of consecutive years. Yeah. I, I think about it too, of like, what if you made it kind of like a, a different style of tradition? I think that for sure there needs to be some kind of give and take with Monaco, right? I don't know the exact number that they pay, but I think it's like five or $10 million when there's new circuits that are paying $50 million or plus right? And when you think about it in that context, like Formula One's a business, they're trying to grow, they're trying to expand the sport. A lot of this comes down to money. I think that's probably part of it when you have new places like Miami, Las Vegas, et cetera, coming on the calendar that are willing to pay these large sums. I think that will probably have to increase over time, especially if people are not happy with the racing. I've seen some stuff with sponsors where Rolex is the brand of Formula One, and then they have different trackside signs, right? So I think some of that maybe gets worked out over time and they try to figure out different ways to do that. You probably know more than me how much the track can actually be changed. I'm not sure what they can even really do there if they wanted to make racing better, right? Like, is there anything at all? Yeah, I mean, there are some, it is a true street circuit in, in the purest form. And, and there are some streets that are currently unused where you could go left instead of right before the tunnel and then sort of go down a long street and then come back. My only concern there is you don't want to have a high entry speed to the tunnel where if there are two drivers were to come together, wheel to wheel, one could get airborne right at the entrance of the tunnel. Yeah. Right. You definitely don't want something like that. And in fact, in the old days of Monaco at the seafront chicane, we've had drivers actually drive into the water when they've crashed and not been able to make the turn down there. So there are certainly layouts of it that make more sense than others. I, I would actually pursue it in a different way. 
I would actually pursue this in a way of either doing reverse grids, right, at Monaco, yeah. where the pace differential between cars genuinely is big enough to have overtakes because you have much, much, much faster cars behind slower cars and that could potentially work, or changing the entire point structure of the weekend to focus more on qualifying or award more points on qualifying or do some variation just for Monaco that's a little bit different from other, other races. The solution may not actually be the circuit itself, it may end up being how you want to run races there. So that's something to consider as well. Yeah, because it feels like qualifying is really what people are, what is the show of the weekend, right? Because it is, you know, how close some of these cars are coming. They're, they're coming millimeters, right, from some of these barriers or these walls. And it's obviously, a, a, takes a high level of skill to navigate the circuit at the speeds that they're doing. So it almost feels like that is the crown jewel of the weekend, watching them navigate the streets kind of solo on Saturday. So maybe if there was a shift towards highlighting that in some degree, maybe that works. The overtake thing like reverse grid is always something that I've heard and something that I've thought about would be awesome, right? Just seeing people kind of climb their way back up the field and, and doing it in reverse order. And and again, just, just to be clear, that could backfire as well because yeah. even a five-second pace differential may not be enough. <laughs> that's what I was just going to say is I really don't even know if that's enough because yeah. we've seen even yesterday, right? There was cars that were, were much faster in Hamilton than Alonzo on a pace perspective and were held up. Maybe there's a, you know, a, a delta there that's not exactly correct, but at the same time, we could be in a situation where a Williams or whatever is leading the race for a long period of time and people are confused or upset at, at kind of the outcome. So I don't know what the correct answer is, but I'm sure that Formula One and the people running the sport are, are thinking about it at depth right now after, after yesterday's race. All right, I want to switch gears and talk about Checo, Sergio Perez a little bit. What did yesterday's win mean for him, right? I think people are a little interested in, in kind of his dynamic within the team at Red Bull. He was obviously given team orders the other day. My general perspective on that is like people were probably a little more upset than they should have been. I think Max probably had more pace and was going to pass him at some point regardless. Obviously, you want to see people fight and you want teams to compete. But I think people saw him as that kind of second tier driver to Max within Red Bull and, and still probably do to a large degree. Do you think that yesterday's race and his standing in the championship now only being 15 or 20 points down, I think, to Max makes a difference now? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a difference between being a de facto number two driver and being a de jure number two driver, right? Yeah. I mean, there there was some question whether or not there was even a circumstance in which Sheko could win a race in which Max finished, you know, and, and finish ahead of him. I think the circumstances were really good for him. Not only did Sheko become the most successful Mexican driver in the history of Formula One and also the only one to win the Monaco Grand Prix, but yes, it did sting for him to be the subject of team orders in a way that really seemed kind of unnecessary in Spain, especially in a sense, as you said before, if Verstappen's pace was good enough to pass him, then it was. And also, that was a race in which Verstappen's number one title rival, Charles Leclerc, retired from the race. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, if there was ever a race where you could take it easy a little bit and maybe let things play out, it was that one. It did seem to happen. But I think more importantly, the points difference between Checo and, and, and Verstappen needs to be taken seriously. Checo is very much in the championship, whether or not people seem to realize it or not, especially given how important reliability has been this year. There's no question that the order could fluctuate and go through various permutations as the year goes on. I think probably the most important thing about that is not only is Checo a good teammate in terms of accepting team orders, right, and, and moving out of the way when he needs to and, and defending against rivals when he needs to, but he's just a great driver, really. I think it would have been criminal for him to be left off the grid in 2021. He was always a great driver. And even if Red Bull didn't realize at the time that they were signing their perfect you know, number two driver for the team in 2021, that's actually what they've done. 
he deserves an opportunity to demonstrate that. And I think he will. I think some people might be surprised at how good he actually is, you know, driving the old version cars, you know, the high rake, you know, short wheelbase monsters that uh, Asian Nui has made for several years can be difficult for anyone. And I think the current generation cars are a bit better suited to him. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing him have some good results. Yeah, it seems like he's really filled that role quite well, right? As you mentioned, Red Bull had some struggles with their number two driver to max for a period of time. And he came in kind of last minute, actually. He was about to be left off the grid completely. And he's been that perfect number two, whether it's defending Hamilton or scoring points and winning races himself now. He's really done well. Did you see yesterday after the race, he said, I signed the contract too early? Does that mean that that Checo, I assume now, is guaranteed a spot for 2023 with Red Bull? It almost certainly does. After the heat of a long race, a, a physical race with many red flags, and you've just won the race, you're just excited to, to talk about things, and things can sometimes slip. I'm sure that there are some statements that might be made after the fact saying, no, no, that's not what you, you didn't hear what you thought you heard. You know, Don't believe your lying eyes type of thing. But I, I have every expectation that if they did sign him. And frankly, if they didn't sign him, that's their mistake. <laughs> he is exactly who they need. Yeah. And even if you have other drivers that are certainly you know in the frame and they could be good for that seat, Checo is the person that they need from a person coming from like a Mercedes side of view. The addition of Checo to their team makes Red Bull a far more dangerous opponent than with anyone else in the second seat. So, yeah, I, I would say he's the perfect fit for them. Yeah. And speaking of that, I want to talk about Mercedes for a little bit here. Mercedes has obviously had a somewhat of a difficult year, I guess we could say, given the car and, and everything they've gone through with porpoising and everything like that. I want to talk about Russell and Hamilton specifically, though, and, and the, the battle that we've seen between those two kind of intra-team as teammates. I think new fans, right, some people that I've talked to and, and people that I've brought into the sport and get questions a lot about, ask about kind of, oh, this means Hamilton isn't as good as he probably everyone thought he was, right? Because Russell's placing better. I think he's the only driver on the grid now to be top five in every single race so far this year. He's outqualified him a number of times, and Hamilton has, has generally just struggled with the card more. I think people that spend more time within the sport as yourself realize that there's probably a lot more nuance to this and understanding around the setups that the cars have for qualifying, the setups that the cars use in races, the difficulty that Hamilton is experiencing versus a younger driver like George in the setups and so forth. Just talk me through your kind of impression so far of those two this year and the battle that they've gone through. Yeah, it has been really interesting. You know, I think everyone should have understood sort of how good George Russell was after the sack here Grand Prix in 2020. And certainly, you know, taking a Williams and qualifying second legitimately in, in Spa in 2021. Certainly anyone who followed his junior formula, you know, Formula 3, Formula 2, winning those series in his first year, not just winning them, but dominating them in, in very strong fields of other drivers. Anyone who's followed George really understands that he was never an average or number two driver in, in the traditional sense. I, I really view him as a number one driver in training. Right. He just has the, the good fortune of being trained by, you know, seven times world champions for Lewis Hamilton, which is very lucky for. And it's true that there have been objective factors that are involved in his positioning versus Lewis in terms of qualifying certain times, in terms of setups and, and carrying sensors. And certainly there have been some issues in the races that have been very bizarre. You know, for example, in Spain, both Russell and Hamilton had severe first lap contact with other cars. Russell with Perez and Hamilton with Magnuson, only one of them resulted in a puncture. And that drastically changed the nature of the race for both of them, despite Lewis's phenomenal race pace. But you also have to give George credit, right? George has been lucky in a certain number of situations, but he's also been 
close enough for those small differences to make a difference, if that makes sense, right? He hasn't been 30 seconds off the pace and pitting after behind the safety car has no impact on whether he beats Lewis or not. He's been close enough genuinely to make that happen. And so I certainly want to give him credit for being as good as he's been. But I would say over the course of a season, if you can put it to Lewis Hamilton <laughs> over the course of a full season, you know, more power to you. I think it's going to be difficult in an objective sense. And I also think that the development of the W13 as a car in terms of its concept is also kind of an interesting part of this, right? Because the team has admitted itself, they don't know their car anywhere near as well as they've needed to know it to really make the maximum performance out of it. They're learning every day. And depending on the particular race and, and the setups of the car, sometimes you just have to go in a diversion setup direction just to learn something. So I, I'm very curious to see how the next few races go. They made an objective step forward in Spain with regard to their porpoising to improve their performance. But Monaco is, is different. You know, it's a very, very slow speed track. The porpoising didn't really seem to be the issues for most team, teams. It seems to actually just be the vertical ride. The cars were just too stiff to be bumping over the curbs and the strong bumps that had a completely different effect on the pace than high-speed porpoising did. So yeah, I'm, I'm very curious to see how Baku goes, how Canada goes. Canada is a circuit that Lewis is is phenomenal at. We haven't had an opportunity to race here in a couple of years. If George Russell can beat Lewis Hamilton around Montreal, around the circuit de Gilles Villeneuve, then maybe I can start asking a few questions. But right now, I'm just happy to see them both coming in the points. Yeah, I think that's probably the correct take, right? And I think most people have underestimated or it's under-talked about how good of a season George Russell is having relative to, to maybe what people might have expected from him. But to your point, he's always been an incredible driver. It was obvious when he was in a Williams or other cars. Let's talk about the, the Mercedes team in general, though. Right? You mentioned some of the upgrades that they brought to Barcelona. The car has obviously improved. They believe, and I think they've even said this at some point, of they're closer to the top of the pace that they need to be, but still not there. They're probably a few tenths of a seconds off still. Lewis said, and I don't want to misquote him here, but something along the lines of he will win a race this year thinks he will win a race or something right there. I don't know if he guaranteed it or whatever it was, but he believes he will be in contention for race wins at some point during this season. Is that the general understanding you get from a technical perspective? Like how far off is the W13 and the Mercedes team from actually winning races? Yeah, I, I think I think prior to Spain, I would have said at some point in the season, maybe they would win a race, maybe two. The pace that they actually showed in Spain, I think was actually they could get three or, or more I think the thing to consider for Spain is that, yes, you know, Sergio Perez had the fastest lap, but Lewis Hamilton's fastest lap is only a tenth off of that. And his race pace was kind of insane, <laughs> given he was, you know, 30 seconds off the pace. And he probably would have been competing for a win, right, if he had not have had that? Uh, I don't think he would have caught Leclerc if Leclerc had not retired. Yeah, yeah, Leclerc removed. Certainly he could have been in, in contention because the race pace of the car has, was just significantly better than the qualifying pace necessarily. And so I definitely think that there's a very real possibility and who knows what other drivers do under pressure, right? If they're pushing to get away from you, maybe they can be pushed into a mistake for Stappen and signs, both made mistakes in the turn four, presumably as a result of a crosswind gust. So we never know what, what could have happened. Even with that not being the case, you know, Lewis would have finished P4 were it not for, you know, a water leak issue on his car and Russell's car that they required him to lift off significantly. So I, I definitely think that they have the the pace. A big component of what they need to make that package competitive has been progress has been demonstrated on that. I, I'm I'm humble enough before the problem of porpoising to be able to say just because you solved it at one circuit doesn't guarantee that you solved it at every possible circuit. 
but they have a, a toolkit now. They have a, a method of strategies that they know works to improve things. And that's a big step in the right direction. I've always said, you know, if you've eliminated the porpoising and the W13 is still, you know, eight tenths off the pace in the race, you know, just forget the concept, right? Use a different concept if you want and, and explore something else. Learn as much as you can about a, a direction that works. I don't think we're in that position anymore. I think the race pace that was shown in Spain is enough for me to stick with the current zero pod side pod concept. But at the same time, Monaco is an outlier track for sure. And the reasons why they were so they are, are different than the other circuits, but they're going to be outlier circuits as well. You have to find ways to make the car fast regardless. So I'm very curious to see how things play out. I think Baku and Canada will be very good indicators of where Mercedes is in an objective sense for the championship. But yes, I do think it, Lewis will very possibly win races and, and Russell's right there. So I think he'll get his first win sometime soon as well. Yeah. And when we speak about the championship, how do you think about it in context of, of where we are today, right? After Monaco with several more races to go, obviously, is it still Charles versus Max? Has Checo entered the race? Is someone from Mercedes or another competitor, Carlos or someone else involved? Just talk me through kind of how you think about the championship battle going forward. I think broadly speaking, it's still probably Charles versus Max. As we said, Charles would have won this race were it not for a strategic blunder from Ferrari and then the rainy conditions that always mixed up things anyway. In a dry race, it could have been a Ferrari one too if circumstances had, had been different. I do still think it's probably Max and Charles, although as we said before, Sergio seems to be getting better every race, really. And he's certainly good enough to pick up the pieces if things go wrong. So that's definitely something to consider. On, on the Mercedes side, though, it is true that the team, I would say that both championships are, they only exist theoretically at this point for, for Mercedes. But as that car gets faster, they're going to be a thorn in the side of really anyone else in the top four because they're going to be in their pit window. They're going to be able to cover strategies that other teams might not be able to cover previously. They're going to be putting pressure in ways they had in the first part of the season. And that can cause mistakes to happen that will have implications on the people who are actually fighting for the championship. And again, this is Formula One. Anything can happen. You know, you go back to 2007 where Kimi Raikkonen was nowhere <laughs> in the entire season. And because there was so much sort of infighting at McLaren and some other details, he just snuck by right at the end to get a single point. And we saw how last year it was in terms of the point swing over the course of the season. Hamilton fought back unbelievably in the last four races to be right there at the end. So I wouldn't count out anyone, but right now I still think it's Leclerc versus Verstappen for the championship. Gotcha. What did you think about Latifi and Stroll hitting the wall yesterday or the barriers under a safety car? Let me preface my statements by saying that <laughs> all Formula One drivers are the top 1% of the 1% of the 1% of all drivers in the world. They, they really are the best at what they do. Yeah. However, it doesn't look great when we try to, to say these are the best drivers in the world, give them a chance to actually race. And then at the first opportunity, they, they slide off the track and saying, I don't understand. You know, the car just didn't turn. It's like, well, that's, that's understeer. You know, <laughs> we don't under, it's a well-documented phenomenon. That's not really great. It, it can happen to the best of us. Certainly, I would have crashed before Latifi did. But he's a Formula One driver, a professional Formula One driver. It's not really clear exactly what's going on there. Because remember, last year, Williams had races where they were they qualified in second place legitimately in, in Spa. And then another race, they had two cars in the points. Legitimately, two cars in the points. It's hard to imagine them being in that situation this year, even though Albon had some, some really good performances. So I'm not quite sure what's going on. But suffice it to say, it doesn't look great when you crash into the wall on the uh, formation lap. Basically. Yeah, I, I think Monaco was also 
just kind of weird this year, right? If you looked at the pre-race predictions, I think most people probably expected a team like Alpha Romeo to perform better, a team like Haas to probably perform better, just given kind of maybe how their car was or, or relative to some of the other sector times that they had. But those teams and many others obviously didn't perform to their the peak that they might have thought they were able to. So it was certainly a weird race. Yeah, just to be fair, you know, Haas did have a mechanical retirement with Magnussen. And, yeah. you know, I think Mick Schumacher was allegedly mere millimeters off of the line where it needed to be to avoid that spin and crash. Size of a crayon, right? 10 millimeters <laughs> or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not sure what the ultimate pace of that car is. And again, it's Monaco. So who knows? I think Haas is, is a stronger team than people are, are realizing. They certainly started off out of the blocks very strong. But I think they also have an upgrade coming that they didn't have for Spain. We noticed that as very, being very conspicuous thing that they didn't have a big update for Spain. They will have updates coming, and I think it will improve their pace too. How expensive are these things? I know Schumacher's car each time is a million dollars or more to repair the past two times that this has happened. How much does this weigh on the team? These are, you know, Formula One is an, an eye-wateringly expensive sport, not only for fans to attend it and watch the races, because <laughs> I was in Miami, but also in terms of just the manufacturers trying to actually construct these cars and build them and repair them. Yeah, I remember seeing a figure, it may have been from Peter Windsor, that the damage from Carlos Sainz and Perez's crashes in Q3 and qualifying was like $500,000 for one and like $750,000 for the other one. <laughs> like it was it was a, a massive amount of money for new parts and, and fixing parts and all these things. So the short answer is it's extremely expensive and I wouldn't even ask Gunther Steiner how much, it, how much these things cost. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. If you don't ask, you don't have to know, which is good. All right, Bryson, thank you so much for doing this. This was awesome. This was a lot of fun. We'll have to do it again soon. There's no shortage of drama in Formula One, so I'm sure we'll have a lot more to talk about after other races, whether it be Baku or Montreal or other places. So thank you so much for doing this. Where can I send people to find more of your content on the internet? I'm on Twitter at Natural Paradigm. Most of the things that I discuss are there. I do write the article occasionally, the authentic article. But for right now, you can find me on Twitter at Natural Paradigm. Great Twitter follower. I hope everyone goes and checks it out because you're excellent on Twitter. I know that you're live tweeting the race and I'm like, sometimes if I'm, if I'm out moving or if I'm, you know, just doom scrolling social while I'm watching, I enjoy your tweets. So keep it up. You're doing a great job, man. <laughs> well, thank you. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.